0: This is the Ethics Lab podcast, exploring the path from better knowledge to practical results in healthcare ethics.
1: Seeing one person is one person, and that the importance of really individualization and not grouping a, a diagnosis or a particular group together and thinking that a one-size-fits-all method will work, or not work for that matter, but really honing in on what that particular patient's strengths and or weaknesses are and work accordingly from such.
2: Our guests today are Sherry Boggs, Quality Patient Safety and Education Manager at Our Lady of Peace Hospital, a psychiatric hospital in Louisville, Kentucky, and one of the largest psychiatric facilities in the nation. Dr. Ali Abba, Practicing Psychiatrist at the Michael E. DeBakey VA Medical Center and Associate Professor, Psychiatry Research at Baylor College of Medicine in Houston, Texas. Dr. Paul Applebaum, Practicing Psychiatrist at New York State Psychiatric Institute and Professor, Columbia University Department of Psychiatry. And Stephen Post, author of The Moral Challenge of Alzheimer's Disease. One of the challenging areas in clinical practice today is wanting to honor patient wishes but not being clear on the competency or capacity level of the dementia or behavioral health issues experienced by the patient that is being served. Different challenging situations arise that ask not only what is the best assessment of capacity, but what level of risk should be tolerated, and how might healthcare professionals approach these situations at a deeper human level. I'm Kevin Murphy, and this is Ethics Lab. To offer background or context to our conversation today, I want to offer some national statistics regarding mental health. 18% of adults have a mental health condition in the United States, which equals over 43 million Americans. Nearly half have a co-occurring substance abuse disorder. 9.6 million experience suicidal ideation. Most Americans also lack access to care. 56% 56% of American adults with a mental illness did not receive treatment. One in five report an unmet need. 77 of youth have no access to mental health services through their private insurance. And there is a shortage of providers. Using Alabama as an example, there's only one mental health professional per 1,260 people. And to meet the need for mental health care, providers in their lowest ranked states would have to treat six times as many people than providers in the highest ranked states. I'm joined now by Sherry Boggs and Dr. Ali. Sherry, you are going to begin our conversation with a typical patient story that would provide a typical ethical tension to our clinical colleagues.
1: A young woman presented for an evaluation for treatment. She is in her early 20s, recently had her two children taken away by Child Protection Services for her legal issues surrounding drugs. Her psychiatric evaluation did determine that she could benefit from inpatient hospitalization for detox from opiates. She was admitted and began the detox treatment. On day three, she presented to the clinical team voicing that she wanted to be discharged. She stated she could not tolerate the withdrawal and the medications were not helping and she just needed out of here. While the clinical team attempted to re-educate her on the detox process and her body's reaction to releasing the toxins of the drugs, she insisted she could not stay and needed to get back to work. State law indicates for a person to be involuntarily committed to a psychiatric hospital, they must be a danger to self or others, and this must be the least restrictive level of treatment. While the attending psychiatrist did not believe she met criteria for the involuntary hold, he was able to talk to her and enroll her in our outpatient partial hospitalization program. He informed her of long-acting injectable clinic that was available and that she would be eligible to receive Vivitrol for her opiate recovery efforts. This once monthly medication eliminates the high people get when using opiates and this medication along with psychotherapy have been proven to aid people in recovery. Nursing staff, question if discharge is safe and is in the best interest for this patient.
2: So Sherry, certainly a challenging patient situation. You've probably run into these types of paradigm stories uh, often. Would that be an understatement?
1: That, that is actually very true. I do.
2: So with a case like this, what types of issues start to get unpacked for you? And then and then right after you make a couple of comments, we'll also go to Dr. Ali for, for his comments on this type of case as well.
1: I think one of the first things that comes to mind from a, a, a quality patient safety standpoint is what is in the best interest of the patient. You know, we obviously wanna honor patient rights in the patient's decision To leave a hospital setting, but also want to look at what's safe for the patient um, in general and for their medical condition. You know, this patient's going through acute detox. Is that something that needs to be addressed first and foremost, or do the patient rights trump that? So, in my ethical thinking of that we err on the side of safety and the the quality patient safety world and would say that you know we're going to err on safety and work with the patient to try to communicate to them those safety issues and look at where they are meet them where they are in treatment and work to identify what we can collaborate together to meet the care treatment needs of the individualized patient.
2: Thanks, Sherry. There are types of common issues or questions that arise in these types of patient cases. Uh, And obviously the first one is the patient competent to make an informed decision. We'll be uh, joined by Dr. Paul Applebaum in a couple of minutes to kind of talk about assessment tools but continuing with those common issues, addiction. Um, Sometimes addiction issues are underneath some other kinds of patient issues that we're trying to address. And so the issue of addiction as a disease, and sometimes staff feel patients should have some personal responsibility over the kinds of issues that they're dealing with as well. As you mentioned, Sherry, autonomy versus the duty to protect is sometimes a tension that's there. And as well, even going a little deeper, what are the better ways to recognize someone's personhood as these patient care situations are being responded to? Dr. Ali from Baylor College of Medicine, you have uh, seen cases like this as well. Any any comments that you have for the Paradigm case that Sherry offered us, or any of your own reflections on, on the cases
3: that, that you've seen as well? I think you point out a really good issue, which is addiction as a disease, uh, which for many people is seen differently and felt differently and then treated differently. So for instance, the state of Texas in our mental health involuntary paperwork for application for involuntary care. Uh, Addiction or a substance use disorder is not grounds for involuntary care. Uh, There are other uh, paperwork that can be filled out to make that case. So just from the get-go I think people will come in with a very different mindset about the reasons for which they might hold someone against their will or even admit someone against their will. Um, Certainly there have been cases in my personal experience where repetitive patterns just like one may see with someone with mania uh, where they do really well at the time of discharge but then perhaps they have a change in their mood uh, their decision making is impaired and then they're involuntary admitted similar patterns and cycles have occurred with uh, people with substance use and on occasion we've treated them similarly which is You're doing really well right now, but when a relapse occurs, your condition is such that your decision-making is greatly impaired to the point that we have evidence that you become a danger to yourself, imminent danger to yourself or others.
2: There are two principled working assumptions implicit in our conversation that we want to make explicit. The first is the importance of informed consent and the goal to achieve informed consent with patients with mental health challenges. The second working assumption is that a patient is presumed to have capacity unless facts indicate it is lacking. I would like to invite into the conversation Dr. Paul Applebaum. Dr. Applebaum, you have contributed Sentinel articles on the assessment of capacity, and I believe you are offering us another typical patient story that will offer us insight today.
0: So, Patricia, who I think exemplifies a, a number of issues that arise when we're trying to determine whether patients are consent to or refuse treatment was a 75-year-old woman who had type 2 diabetes and peripheral vascular disease and who was admitted to a general hospital with a gangrenous ulcer on the plantar aspect of her left foot. A surgical consultant was called, and he recommended a below-the-knee amputation, thinking that the ulcer would to heal and that uh, without such surgery, her life might be at risk. But she declined the procedure on the grounds that she'd lived long enough, and when she was ready to die, she wanted to die intact. Her internist, who had known her for 15 years, was concerned that she'd been increasingly confused over the past year and now appeared to be depressed. So this was a a case that we were called to consult on a number of years ago that I think frames the issues in a fairly straightforward way for us to, uh, to consider. To use Patricia's case, and we'll come back to the specifics in a few minutes, to talk a little bit about competence, what it is, and then how we go about uh, assessing it. has been the touchstone in liberal democratic societies for. Those circumstances in which citizens get to make their own decisions as opposed to having someone else make decisions uh, for them. And uh, over the years, we've moved from a concept of competence as something that is general and all encompassing to something that is quite specific. I mean by that. 200 years ago, and in many places, even 75 years ago, competence was considered to be all or nothing. Either you were competent to make all the decisions in your life, but to make none of them. And then beginning in the second half of the 20th century and continuing until today, a recognition dawned that people's capacities could be impaired in very specific ways. So for example, somebody who was paranoid about the intent of their physician in prescribing antipsychotic medication might not be competent to make a decision about whether to take that medication, but might be perfectly competent to decide where to live, how to spend their money, uh, with whom to they had a specific incapacity. They were incompetent for a very specific decision, namely a particular type of medical decision making, but not more generally. Hence, state statutes and court decisions have generally recognized that when we ask, is somebody competent, we're not asking that as a global matter, but we're asking, are they competent for a particular Now, that being said, I want to underscore that some people are generally incompetent. A severely uh, demented patient may be incompetent to make any decisions for herself, but there's retain some capacities while losing others. The second characteristic of competence I think is important to keep in mind, which is related to that is what I call task specificity. That is even within a particular of competence or capacity, and I use those terms uh, interchangeably. uh, For example, medical decision-making. Some medical decisions are more complicated than others. Who has some mild to moderate degree of cognitive impairment may be perfectly competent to decide whether or not to have a flu shot, having had the shots before and having had the flu before, uh, but might not be competent decision about heart surgery, a valve replacement with a complicated set of risks and benefits. And the third characteristic of competence that is important in our clinical work is specificity. By which I mean competence can change over time. It is not in many cases a static trait of the patient, but it may reflect the state that they are in at any point in time. So if you think about Uh, patients with psychotic disorders. At times, they're more psychotic, and at times, they're well compensated. When well compensated, they may well have capacity to make decisions for themselves, and at other times, they may lack it. Sundowning, a phenomenon seen with uh, patients with dementia in which they lose capacities over the course of the day as they get more tired as sensory input as it becomes dark outside is another place where that distinction is relevant. So those are some general characteristics of competence, but what is competence? How do we know whether somebody's competent or not? And for this, we generally ask about a set of four elements, four abilities, that relate to decisional competence and i want to go through uh, each one of them very briefly <clears throat> is the ability to evidence a choice that is to say yes or no somebody who's comatose and can't evidence a choice is obviously in no position to make a decision for themselves but evidencing a choice can more complicated there are sometimes people who can evidence too many choices that is patients who by virtue of psychotic levels of ambivalence change their mind so frequently that no one course of implemented before they've uh, decided they actually want something else and in that circumstances if caused by an underlying mental disorder their inability to evidence may well impair their decisional competence The second uh, element of competence is the ability to understand the relevant information. And this is pretty straightforward and uncontroversial. If you can't understand that information that your physician disclosed to you by virtue of the legal and ethical doctrine of informed consent, including the nature of your condition, the nature and purpose of the proposed treatment, its risks the potential benefit to that proposed treatment, you're clearly in no position to make a decision about whether or not to accept that treatment. The third element of competence is the ability to appreciate the information that you've now understood to your own situation and the best ways to illustrate uh, a failure of uh, appreciation is is with a concrete example so a patient who look I, I understand that you're telling me that you think i'm psychotic and that i need this medication but i actually know that you're the crazy one doctor uh, and i don't need the medication so Here's a patient who may have a good understanding of the information that's been disclosed to them. They just don't see how it's relevant uh, to their own situation. And assuming that they're wrong, that they are, in fact, psychotic, they would be said to lack the ability to appreciate the relevance of the information to their own situation. And finally, is the ability to reason that is, to take that information understood and appreciated, and use it in a more or less logical process of weighing risks and benefits to reach an outcome. So evidencing a choice, understanding and reasoning are the four elements of decisional competence. Although there's some variation uh, across jurisdictions, by and large, most jurisdictions in this country, and in fact overseas for that, embrace all four of these as necessary elements for someone to be said to be competent. Now, there are different ways of asking questions of patients to assess uh, those four capacity, uh, and there's no one right way to do it. But in addition to a clinical uh, evaluation, uh, there are a number of instruments that have been developed to allow structured assessment uh, of competence. Structured assessment is helpful in that uh, it increases the reliability of your competence determination. It guarantees that you're doing a thorough evaluation, makes sure you go through all the questions you need to ask, provides a record of the assessment, which can be important if legal proceedings ensue, and it offers other comparative data on the basis of which the patient's performance can be uh, judged. There are a- structured instruments that are out there uh, to choose from. Uh, One of them is an instrument that my colleague Tom Grizzo and I uh, developed a number of years ago, the MacArthur Competence Assessment Tool for Treatment, which is probably used of these uh, instruments in clinical practice and research, Uh, and the idea behind them, again, is to systematize the assessment, make it more reliable, and make sure that it is in fact uh, complete. Let me get back to Patricia. Uh, You remember that her uh, physicians were questioning her capacity to competently refuse surgery on her gangrenous foot. To the extent that she is able to communicate her decision, which she was, understand the information about her condition, which she also was, appreciate the consequences of her especially in this case, that she's pretty likely to die if she foregoes having the recommended amputation and can weigh the relative risks and benefits of the options of surgery or no surgery, uh, we would be competent to make a treatment decision. However, given that she's choosing here between life and death, uh, we would also require a relatively high level of performance. That is on a sliding capacity, uh, we'd want her to be pretty good at all four elements, really good understanding, good appreciation, and good reasoning uh, ability. Uh, and in an important case like this, again, with a life on the line, using assessment instrument uh, could be helpful. Given that there's some suspicion that Patricia may be depressed, and some evidence that she was experiencing, at the very least, mild cognitive impairment, um, maybe more signs of early dementia, this is a case in which you also might think about psychiatric consultation, although keeping in mind that either depression or mild cognitive impairment don't necessarily preclude the possibility of Patricia has the ability to make a competent
2: decision. So with that quick overview of competence, let me stop there. Dr. Oppelbaum, this is Kevin Murphy again. Um, Appreciate your comments. For many locales that may not have psychiatric consultation available to them, what is the possibility for primary care physicians or other clinicians to utilize the MacArthur tool that you mentioned to be able to do an adequate assessment of the patient? What's your thoughts on that?
0: Yeah, I don't think that there's any necessity to call in a, uh, a consultant uh, for a, a competence assessment. Indeed, when you think about what physicians do all the time, they're constantly of their patients to understand what they're telling them uh, and make a decision. Even in more challenging cases, uh, primary care physicians and and non-psychiatric specialists should be able to do these evaluations. The McCarthy provides a structured way of doing it, which is quite straightforward. Um, But even uh, resorting to a clinical evaluation is something that clinicians should be able to do.
2: And my understanding is the assessment takes about 20 minutes using the MacArthur tool?
0: Yeah, it's a little variable, depending on how uh, communicative uh, the patient is and and how intact their capacities are. Uh, 20 minutes is uh, probably at the the upper end of really intact patient could do it with you in 10, Uh, but that's a a, a
2: fair uh, range to think about, 10 to 20 minutes. I also found interesting that among psychiatric disorders, there's obviously a variety and a variance with the likelihood for impaired capacity to occur. And so the example that schizophrenia has a stronger association with impaired capacity, uh, much more so than depression.
0: Yeah, we did a study some years ago in which we looked at hospitalized patients with schizophrenia and with depression. And we found that capacity was questionable in about half of the inpatients, but only about a quarter uh, of the inpatients uh, with depression. Those numbers will vary. Outpatients in both categories are, are likely to have higher rates of capacity than those we found in the hospital.
2: Dr. Stephen Post, our title for this episode reflects that we want to go beyond capacity assessment to some of the deeper human dynamics present for family members, clinicians, and patients in these challenging situations. What are some of those deeper dynamics that we need to be aware of?
4: Yes. Thank you, Kevin. Uh, So in the world of what I call deeply forgetful people, since I generally think of the word dementia, As not necessarily derisive, but as very stereotyping. So, in the world of deeply forgetful people, most of what we talk about is relational autonomy. Uh, Obviously, you know, very early on, people can still have uh, capacity, but uh, their whole life is dependent on a caregiver, uh, often um, a loved one, who. is there 24-7, or even as they sometimes say, 36 hours per day. Uh, So everything is relational, and what one does is make every effort to allow an expression of autonomy in even very small things. It's good to learn how to communicate reasonably well with Deeply forgetful people. That means that um, instead of uh, asking them if, if and if they would what, what would you like for, for, for breakfast, some open-ended question, you can ask them, "Well, would you rather have cereal or uh, a bagel with cream cheese?" And in the process of cueing them, you'll typically elicit more of a response. And so those small expressions of autonomy are what what matter. Um, Most. I've collected a lot of vignettes of individuals who have been surprisingly present underneath the uh, breakdown in communication. Therefore, I'm never one to label a deeply forgetful person as gone, absent, a husk, a shell, and so forth. I take more of a disability model and I look for. the remaining uh, capacities, which I often find sometimes to uh, great surprise. So this vignette of a, a woman who spent three hours yesterday afternoon with her sister. She tried to make sure that her facial expression, her tone of voice, her intentionality were positive and loving. She didn't understand a word that her sister said, But at the end of the visit, uh, the sister uttered, I want you to stay with me always. That kind of sporadic lucidity, to me has always been humbling and it's made me assume that there's more underneath the confusion than meets the eye. Another case from a medical student here at Stony Brook from a couple of years ago, my grandfather looked at my mother and spoke to her with complete lucidity for the first time in a year. He talked about the old times when he used to walk her to school. Then he talked about me and told her to make sure I kept working hard in school. And the last thing he said was how proud he was of her and that he loved her. The next morning he was gone. And then this wonderful woman, Olivia Hobblesell, who wrote a great book, As a Caregiver, 10,000 Joys and 10,000 Sorrows, In that late stage when words are gone, except for those very occasional moments, she looked at me intently and said forcefully, God, physics, and the universe. So the point there is that I never assume that somehow there's a disconnect between the formerly intact self prior to the onset of uh, dementia and the current self. I don't... uh, discard the idea of continuity of self-identity, and therefore things that are stated by a person uh, either before onset or in the mild period, I tend to take very seriously and try to effectuate those wishes uh, consistent with safety. So uh, relational autonomy, which really involves a kind of balancing of the perspectives of the individual who's got dementia and the individual who's caring for them—that's that's important. I do uh, more than some uh, look carefully at what people might have specified. That's called precedent autonomy, or autonomy is expressed uh, precedent to the actual onset of symptoms. On a slightly different level, I'm very critical. Generally, of of what I call hypercognitive values uh, of the idea that somehow, because people are cognitively disabled uh, to some degree, that they're no longer quite worthy of equal regard. Uh, I'm always amazed by the amount of creativity uh, I see in people who are deeply forgetful. They have symbolic meaning systems. They can express emotion, relationality, mirth. They can be somatic. You see that in the music and memory movement, where people who have been incommunicado for weeks and even months, if primed by a deeply personal piece of music that they identify with uh, from midlife, uh, they will get very somatic. They will get rhythmic. They will begin to sing a verse or line or maybe more. And interestingly enough, about 40% of them afterwards will be able to engage in some uh, conversation, so long as you do it carefully, for about three to four minutes. Then they lapse back into that sort of deep forgetfulness, but they tend to do, do a little better over the course of the day because they've gotten back in touch with themselves. So it's, of course, inspiring for their caregivers because they realize that, well, mom is still there or dad hasn't gone away yet. So all these aspects of self are important to me, and and uh, there can be expressions of autonomy in art, in, in uh, music, in rhythm, in beauty, and in, in taste, in touch. These things are important, and people do express anyway certain kinds of preferences. There's a great artist by the name of de Kooning who was... Uh, an abstract expressionist full of anxiety, and he was, of course, a a great painter. As he spent 13 years with probable dementia of the Alzheimer's type, he still painted, and his paintings became simpler. Uh, They became a little bit more like the work of Georgia O'Keeffe. So if we go to his painting uh, at the end of his life, he was... About a, a year uh, before dying, he was still painting. Uh, there is a kind of lucidity and tr- almost tranquility about these later paintings. You know, some of the art critics said, well, he was just a shell of his former self and we shouldn't take this work seriously. It's not complex, it's not meaningful. <clears throat> but I actually liked a, re- a, a reviewer from The New Yorker who said, well, wait a minute, this is a man with dementia who for 13 years knew what he wanted to do, and he did. He rose up sporadically in his apartment in Greenwich Village with one assistant, and he would simply dip his paint in, uh, um, his brush and paint, and walk up to uh, an easel, and he would would do this incredible work. There was a whole exhibit to him uh, posthumously at the Museum of Modern Art. So my point is that you have to be very careful about assuming um, that there's not much left underneath the um, experience of uh, communicative loss. There's obviously neurological loss, but every every brain is different. Uh, you've seen one case. You've seen one case, and uh, there are people I've known who have been remarkably lucid and able to express uh, choices in certain areas of life, even till very near the end, because somehow. Uh, elements of their brains were spared, and everybody in Australia and everybody in the UK who is diagnosed with dementia is given a dementia dog, and uh, it does incredible amounts for them. In fact, when they when they connect with these dogs, um, they tend to change their affect. They change. Uh, they become more positive in their affect, and they tend to uh, uh, want to make more statements of choice. So, simple point, uh, I'm not trying to assess technically the area of competence, but, but uh, simply to say that, that uh, underneath it all, I think continuity of selfhood should not be dismissed, and I don't think we should ever assume that somehow the formerly intact self is irrelevant to disconnected from the current now self, as though that's a completely different enterprise.
2: Your comments remind me of uh, the work of Tom Kitwood and uh, his work called Reconsidering uh, Dementia and, and the Depth of Personhood that, that you speak of, yeah, he also spoke of.
4: Yeah, I don't like the medical model on this. I, I, I think it's very reductive and very stage-driven, and as soon as we start talking heavily about stages, suddenly we forget to look at the unique aspects of the person in front of us who may to varying degrees be uh, relatively competent in some areas.
2: From your perspective, are there certain types of questions? You know, if you want to change a conversation, sometimes it begins with asking different questions. Are there questions you think we're not asking that we should be as we kind of look at the area of care and response to those with dementia or Alzheimer's?
1: I think that
4: we have sometimes, Uh, neglected all the incredible success that can be had when we approach these individuals with a truly psychosocial model. Uh, You know, the brain is, is, there are things happening internal to the brain, but the brain is in relationship with an environment. Uh, There is neuroplasticity. Uh, There are people who talk uh, about even degrees of rementia. It's a strange concept, but the fact that folks can come back into a bit more of who they are when they join, for example, a choir like the Unforgettables at NYU, where they actually the people who are affected and their caregivers sing sing songs and do performances. And I, I just feel as though there's so much that can be done in 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 uh, in Brooklyn, there's the Alzheimer's poet movement i've been in a room with 30 people who frankly had their chins down and couldn't respond to a word i was saying but when uh, with the poet we started reading the road less traveled by robert frost and we did it in the right kinds of ways with the right kind of energy and timing uh, i would say that you know, 80% of the people in the room would uh, would light up and would start uh, reciting words here and there sometimes uh, we just forget how we can connect and of course the the medications these days are you know hopefully someday will be more helpful but to date they're not terribly effective if you on a scale of 0 to 10 if insulin was a 10 as an effective drug for diabetes uh, i would say what we have these days is about a uh, a 0. 0.5 uh, but some of these interventions like music and memory or like the alzheimer's poetry movement and so many many other things I'd say they're up around a six or seven because they actually bring people back into who they are, at at least temporarily, and they inspire caregivers in marvelous ways.
2: As we are getting closer to the end of our episode, I would like to offer the following question to all of our guests today. From your experience, do you feel there are one or two typical mistakes or misunderstandings that clinicians make that you could offer to our listeners today?
0: Yeah, so this is Paul Applebaum. You know, I I think one of the mistakes I see clinicians make is to assume that because a patient lacks capacity at a point in time, that that means somebody else has to make the decision for the patient, and there's nothing that can be done to change that. In fact, a finding of incapacity should be the trigger for thinking about the causes of that incapacity and what potential interventions in order to restore capacity and allow the person to make their own decisions. So an example would be a patient who is overwhelmingly anxious about impending surgery uh, and who is that he's unable to focus on the consent disclosure and therefore unable to understand or appreciate uh, the implications of the risk benefit ratio in a context like. Anything that you can do to ease that patient's anxiety, including bringing in family members or friends, sometimes a clergy person uh, by the bedside can help uh, enormously. Or using anti-anxiety might be enough to uh, restore the patient's capacity and let the patient make a decision by themselves. That's an important point, I think, to keep in mind.
1: This is Sherry. I would just reiterate um, the earlier point of, you know, seeing one person as one person and the the importance of really individualization and not grouping a a diagnosis or a particular group together and thinking that a one-size-fits-all method will work or not work for that matter, but really honing in on what that particular patient's strengths and our weaknesses are and work accordingly from such.
3: Yeah, I just wanted to uh, you know, bring together some of the concepts that Dr. Abelbaum also mentioned. For instance, kind of raising a person's capacity and often uh, family members are not included in that process. Many times they have knowledge about the ways that people have conceptualized things, cultural factors that they may be able to bridge and explain or draw out either for the person themselves or the clinical team really important in helping kind of come to and, and Dr. Alpebaum also mentioned that sliding scale of capacity in different issues having different levels maybe and thresholds to meet and the family also being aware of that. People could
2: listen to our conversation today and feel we are confusing that traditional distinction between capacity and competence. Capacity meaning the decision-making ability of a patient determined by an attending physician, and competence, the capacity to make a medical decision determined by the courts. For some, that's an important distinction, but for others, including yourself, Dr. Applebaum, you offer a different point of view.
0: Yeah, so I'm not a fan of the words that are used to uh, describe the distinction. There is a real distinction between a physician's determination, a patient can't make a decision for him or herself, and a court's determination in that regard. However, the specific terms used, whether it's competence or capacity, tend to be used inconsistently, even in legal contexts about capacity, others about competence. And so it's an unstable word usage that I think should not be overemphasized. And practically speaking as well, the physician's decision that a patient is incapable typically doesn't end up in court it is typically the basis on which a decision about substituted decision-making is made. And so it may have uh, equal practical effect to a judge. So I I wouldn't overemphasize the the difference uh, between those two.
2: Are you seeing any information in research that is being done that that you think would be helpful for a listening audience, that it's of interest to you, it's having impact uh, within this realm of patient care that you think listeners should be aware of
0: so there there was a and, and it echoes uh, some earlier work that suggested that clinicians particularly in med surge settings tend to miss a lot of cognitive impairment and other bases for impaired decision-making in their patients. And at one level, that's understandable. The patients uh, in the hospital for a surgical procedure because they're suffering from on treating the underlying medical condition. But the data suggests that more routine attention to people's abilities to make decisions for themselves uh, would be identifying people with some degree of impairment who may need additional supports
4: in making those decisions. The one thing I would add is increasingly by NIH designation and the like, Alzheimer's is being considered a spectrum disorder, not unlike, for example, autism. And we all know how much variation there, there can be in terms of the capacity of of people with autism. So again, you've seen one case, you've seen one case, and you've got to be open to surprises.
2: Today, we reflected on different challenging situations beyond capacity assessment. Not only what is the best assessment for capacity, but what level of risk should be tolerated and how might healthcare professionals approach these situations at a deeper human level. I appreciate our guest's contribution today and also the participation of our listeners. I'm Kevin Murphy, and this is Ethics Lab.
0: We hope you have enjoyed this edition of the Ethics Lab podcast, exploring the path from better knowledge to practical results in healthcare ethics. Ethics Lab was created by Kevin Murphy and Russell Keithline. Thanks for listening. Join us again. <laughs>